Welcome to Covenant Life Church, a ministry that is committed to helping you discover Christ's purpose for your life and leading you towards your best existence by providing you with meaningful ways to affect positive change in your world. Join Pastor Shane as he delivers a powerful and inspirational message for your life today. So in November, the youth group is going to youth convention, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but to help offset the cost for our teenagers, on October 20th, we're going to have a, a big sell slash auction. Okay, so uh, if you want to be a part of that, if you want to help us make something for the youth, that'd be great. Uh, and then, but most importantly, if you would come on that day willing to uh, donate in the form of buying some dessert, that would be wonderful. So October 20th, which is just a couple weeks away, uh, we're going to do that. and It's going to be fantastic. So uh, I want to open up this morning just with a word of prayer and ask God to be with us. Uh, God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence once again. God, I pray this morning that our hearts and our ears would be open to your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, and before we hear, or we want our hearts to be positioned to say yes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life uh, when I've been an emotional wreck. Uh, one of these times... Uh, happened in the first grade. So I, I went to school in kindergarten, and I was a champ. I don't remember anything dramatic from kindergarten, okay? Uh, I, I do remember some moments from kindergarten, but I don't ever remember, like, fighting my parents. I probably did, but I don't remember it. First grade, different story. First grade was terrible. We moved to a new town, and I go to a new school. Now, I don't know the name of this teacher, my first first grade teacher. I don't know her name, but I do remember her. Very distinctly. She walked into class, and this must have been like one of the first days. And I remember like the outfit that she was wearing. It was like these red high heels that were like that tall, like shiny red. In my mind, she had like red lipstick on, she had like red hair, and she was really tall and very skinny and bony. And she had a very pointy nose. Uh, and which, in my five or six year old mind, that meant only one thing she was evil. I don't know why, but like for whatever reason, she was not, I was not okay with her. And so I, around lunchtime, would begin to cry. And as I was done, I needed to go home. And my parents for weeks would try and talk me into going to school and being brave. And this teacher, now to her credit, she was nice. She tried all the tricks in the book. She tried to get me to like go outside and see it was a beautiful day. But all my courage was gone around lunch. And then I had to sit in this lady's class for the rest of the day. And I would just begin to cry and say, I want to go home. That's all I would do. Uh, and it was really bad. And so after like a month of this, after my parents trying to persuade me that she was a nice lady and everything was fine, uh, her and the teacher, my parents and the teacher decided that it's probably best that they move me to another class, right? So I got kicked out of a class where I uh, mutually decided it was best for everyone involved if I left this class, which uh, got me into Miss Rozelle's class. And Miss Rozelle, I don't know if she was a good teacher, but compared to this other lady, in my mind, she's the best teacher I ever had, okay? She was like my savior in this moment. And so I loved Ms. Rozelle, and I wanted to make her happy. I wanted to be a good student. I wanted to make my parents happy because I had just gone through all of this. And so, you know, I started to do well in school. And then one day comes, and there's an assignment. And I don't remember if it was a quiz or a test, but it was one of these moments in first grade where you, you do your work, and then you walk up to the teacher, and you stand in line behind other students as the teacher checks your answers and lets you know how you did. Well, I go up and I stand in line, 
And, and I look at another person's test in line, and I realize that my answers are wrong, or at least I think they are. So I do what I think is the right thing to do. I turn around, go back to my desk, and I change my answers. And then I go back up and get back in line. Somewhere between the moment of changing my answers and making my way through that line back to Miss Rozelle, I realize what I've done, that I've just cheated. And it breaks my heart, <laughs> right? And so this little six-year-old emotional wreck of a child begins to cry in Miss Rozelle's class. And I'm crying, and she's like, why are you crying? And I tell her that I've cheated, and I confess what I've done. And, and, and I don't remember exactly what was going on in my mind, but it must have been something like, my life is over. Miss Rozelle is going to hate me. My parents are going to hate me. I'm going to be in so much trouble. It's just over. How many of you have either had kids or remember when you were a child that, like, things just throw you for a whirlwind, and you just... The smallest thing just sends you over the edge. Like with Emma, the smallest thing, she just thinks it's the end of the world as she knows it, that life is done, right? And so this is where I was as this first grader. My life is over. Uh, and so that's pretty, that's pretty funny. Obviously, it's not over, but we can relate to that sentiment, right? We can relate to the, the idea that our future, because of what we've just done, our future is either in serious jeopardy or it's dead, Right? Now, when we're five and six, uh, odds are our future is just fine and we're going to be okay. We're going to bounce back. But as we move into adulthood, we begin to realize and differentiate between, oh no, this is a real problem. Like this, this really can completely ruin my future. Right? We begin to get a sense for the types of decisions that actually have that kind of weight. Right? And so we can end up in these moments in our life or we decide that our future, because of what we've done, is dead and over. And so you've probably had moments like that in your adult life, or maybe you're going through one now, right? Where uh, an argument with your spouse doesn't get resolved, and then months later, or years later, that argument turns into divorce papers. And you come to this moment and you realize that the decisions I've made, the decisions that we've made, have ruined the future of our marriage. Or you, you run a business and you cut corners and you cut corners and you cut corners and then one day a bill comes due and you realize that you can't pay it. And you realize that the decisions you've made have ruined your future. And these are really dark moments in life and it could happen in any number of other situations where the decisions that we make, we come to a moment in our life where we realize that our future's dead. That as life stands right now, there's no way forward. This is a really dark moment to get to. And if you've been there, it's hard to get past. It's incredibly hard to get past. And if you're there today, you may think, there's no hope for my future. You may have tried everything you know to do. You may have gone to counseling. You may have talked to pastors. You may have talked to uh, friends that you know. And you just feel like there is nothing left to be done. I want you to get this today. This is the whole point of the message. Okay, if you don't get anything else, I want you to get this. We serve a God who brings things back to life. We serve a God who brings your future back to life. He comes into moments that you might be walking through where everything seems dead and over, and he brings it back to life. And not just that, but God has plans to give you a future that is far above anything you could ever hope or imagine. He wants to take the path that you're on, change it to his path for you, 
And before you know it, you're gonna experience joy and peace no matter what's going on in your life. You're gonna walk through life with a sense that God really is in control and that your future is safely in his hands. So no matter where you're at today, if you're long past this moment or if you feel you're headed towards this moment or if you're literally living in the moment where you feel like your future is dead, God is the one who can bring it back to life. God is the one who can bring it back to life. So today I want to look at this idea through the lens of 1 Kings 17. But before we get there, I want to give us a little bit of a recap. If you weren't here last week, uh, we had a guest speaker, Andy Lehman, and he preached an awesome message. You should go listen to it online, take some time. He lays out just some beautiful ideas of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. And it's really important just as a Christian to know, but it's really important as a community called Covenant Life to get a sense of what it means to be in covenant with God. And so a quick recap is that he talked about Genesis 15, this really weird covenant with, between Abraham and God where they cut up these animals and then God walks between it. And the amazing point that Andy brought out is that what happens is actually God walks through this. And according to ancient Near Eastern customs, he's saying, I'm going to be faithful to this covenant. And if I'm not, let it be done to me like it's been done to these animals. And then Andy's great point that he really brought out was that he didn't let Abraham walk through that. That God didn't let Abraham walk through it because he knew Abraham would be unfaithful. And so God walks through it on behalf of God and on behalf of Abraham. And this is the most powerful thing, right? Because God says, Abraham, if you're unfaithful to the covenant, let it be done like these animals. Let, it, let, it be ripped, let me be ripped apart. If you're unfaithful, let me be ripped apart. And then what happens? Jesus on the cross gets ripped apart because of Abraham and his descendants and our unfaithfulness. And so we see on the cross the consequences of violating the covenant. The curse of sin is death. And it's horrific death. And it literally happens to God. So this is the story that Andy laid out for us, and it's powerful. He helps us to see how from Genesis 15 all the way to the cross, we need to understand it in the context of a covenant. But there's a lot that happens in between these moments. There's a lot that happens between Abraham's moment with God and Jesus' ultimate payment for the violations. And in between is the story of Abraham's family, and it's the story of there are highs and lows in relationship to this covenant. And today I want to walk you through a little bit of that story that gets us to 1 Kings 17. So Genesis 15, we're introduced to this relationship between God and Abraham. And then the rest of Genesis is the story of Abraham's family. It's the story of how Abraham goes from an old man with no son to suddenly within a couple of generations, hundreds and hundreds of people, and then a couple more generations thousands and thousands and thousands of descendants. And then we begin to go through Exodus. We see Moses. Abraham's descendants are in slavery. And before you know it, they're out of slavery and they're moving towards God's promises for their future. And we come to this book called Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is this book where it lays, really lays out the details of the covenant. So Moses writes out and he says, here's all of the details of what we've set up with God what God has set up with us. 
And it's this amazing book that is, according to the text, is that it all happened in one day, that, that Moses wrote all of this and he read it to the people in front of everyone so that they could hear exactly what their relationship to God is. And it sort of climax in this moment in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, where we get the reading off of the blessings and the cursings. You see, God starts with Abraham and says, you'll be blessed if you follow me, and this will happen if you don't. And then when we get to the full spelling out of the covenant, we begin to see that there's all of these blessings. You'll be prosperous. You'll have a large family. The land will be good to you if you follow the covenant. And if you don't, the exact opposite will happen. So Deuteronomy 28, 17 and 18, it says this. This is a portion of the curses. If you violate the covenant, this is what will happen. It says, the Lord will curse your grain crops and the food you prepare from them. The Lord will curse you by giving you only a few children, poor crops, few cattle and sheep. So God says, faithful, big family, good land. Unfaithful, small family, bad land. Now, we, like in America and in Western civilized countries where we're prosperous, the birth rate actually goes down, right? And so we actually come to this place where the average in America is like two or something like that. And then in European countries, they actually have a negative birth rate, right? Where actually more, less kids are being born than people that are dying. Right? So we don't really get the danger of a small family. Right? We don't really understand that. But if you get into an agricultural society... You get into that moment, you need a big family. You need a big family for a few reasons. Number one, you need some free labor. You need people to work the field for you, right? And now we use free labor for chores around the house, but free labor in agricultural society is about putting food on the table, right? And so you need free labor. And then here's the other deal. You don't have very good hospital or medical care, so a lot of kids die. Like, because how many of you know that kids can be dumb and they do dumb things, right? And they put themselves in dangerous way. That happens no matter what type of society you live in. Kids aren't very smart. They step in front of an ox tilling the field and then you get trampled. I know it's a really bad story, but this is what happens, right? And so you have more kids to increase the odds of survival, right? You just do, right? And so that's just what continues to happen, right? And so when God says, if you're unfaithful, you will have a small family. If you're unfaithful, the land will not produce for you. What he's saying is, if you're unfaithful, your future is hanging by a thread. All it takes is one bad year, and you'll starve. All it takes is one child doing the wrong thing, and your family line will die. When you're unfaithful, your future is hanging by a thread, and it may, in fact, be dead. This is what's at stake with covenant unfaithfulness for Israel. This is what's at stake. And so we get on from Deuteronomy, we hear this moment, and all the people are like, yes, we'll be faithful. And it's funny because at points Moses says, you're not going to be faithful. And Deuteronomy says, you're not going to do this, right? And so then we get into Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel, and we come to First Kings. And it's the story of the people of Israel, and it's them moving into the promises of God, and it's the tragic and joyful story of times when they're faithful and times when they're unfaithful. And wouldn't you know it, when they're faithful, amazing things happen. They're prosperous, things go well, they actually take over the land. When they're unfaithful, the enemy comes in, they struggle, 
Children are dying. People are having a hard time getting pregnant. And wouldn't you know it, that exactly what God lays out in the covenant happens to these people. When they're faithful, blessing. When they're unfaithful, cursing. And so we arrive at 1 Kings 16, right in the middle of this roller coaster of a story, and we meet Ahab. Now, if you know you're not a Bible, you know that Ahab is not a good dude. Ahab is the king, and you want to know what the narrator of 1 Kings says? He was the most evil king ever. He was the most evil king ever. And you want to know why he was the most evil king? Because he married a lady who wasn't from Israel. Now that's a problem in and of itself for them. But the major problem is that he marries a lady named Jezebel. And Jezebel brings along her namesake, Bel. She introduces Israel to this god, Bel. Now they knew who this god was because they lived close to them. But Jezebel and Ahab together make it a part of the religion of Israel. And all of a sudden, Israel is chasing after other gods. And they are in direct violation of God's covenant. God says, you are to have no other gods besides me. So you meet Ahab, you meet Jezebel, you get idolatry. And so as readers of the text, we can expect what's going to happen next. Things are not going to go well. So we arrive in 1 Kings 17, verses 1, and we meet one of the most fascinating characters in the whole Bible. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Okay, we don't get any introduction to Elijah. We don't know who this joker is. He just shows up. And he shows up in the presence of the king, unannounced, unrequested, with a message. And the message is famine, drought. You've been unfaithful to God. Your decisions have led you to this moment. I will not allow rain or dew, and all of your crops will die for the next few years because you've been unfaithful. This is the story that we arrive. This is the introduction to Elijah. And we so often get blown away by this power that he has to command the rain and the storms. We don't realize that this is nothing other than what God always said would happen. That you're unfaithful, the land will be bad to you. That you're unfaithful, the crops won't yield. You're unfaithful, your future is in jeopardy. It's a crazy story. Now, how many of you know if you like show up uh, at the White House with a message that says, oh, President, there will be neither rain nor dew in this country and the stock market will crash. You should probably run and hide uh, if you're going to be able to follow through on that. Right? And so God looks at Elijah and he says, all right, I need you to go into the wilderness because Ahab's going to be mad. And when it really doesn't rain and when things start to get bad, they're going to come looking for you. Right? And so Elijah runs into the wilderness at the command of God, and God says, go and sit by this stream. Now, this stream is actually, when you, when you look at it, it's really just like a trickling of a water. It may get translated as river or creek at times, but it's, it's something that's barely there. So God hides him in the mountains, in the wilderness, and he has birds come and give him meat. 
Right? And so Elijah gets fed this way and survives in the midst of the famine as the country is falling apart, as the kingdom, is, its future is becoming worse and worse. Elijah is protected in the small place by God. But Elijah's food supply and water supply run out. The water dries up from the small creek. And so God tells Elijah to go hang out with this widow from Zarephath. He says, go, go meet this lady. I've instructed her to care for you. He says, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Okay, so Elijah just obeys God. Right now, he's not allowed there to be rain or dew in the, in the country, right? And he goes to this widow. And when he finds her, he finds this other part of the covenant. He finds this lady who has no husband. And so in ancient civilization, if you're a lady without a husband, unless he had a large estate to leave to you, you're in serious trouble. You don't have a lot of standing in society. And so whatever you have, your, your existence is perilous. And then we find out that she has only one son, small family. So we get this story where there's a famine and a very small family. This lady's future is in serious doubt. And when Elijah meets her, she's gathering sticks. She's gathering some sticks. Now, what's interesting about this is that her son is not with her. Her son is not gathering sticks. So there's a couple of options, right? He's, he's a really, really small child and he can't help. Or he's so weak from not having food that he can't get out of the bed. Now, when we read the story, we find out that what she's doing is gathering sticks for their last meal. So it's likely that he's really weak and unable to get out of bed. So this lady's life personally hangs in the balance and her future in the form of her son isn't even strong enough to help her make their last meal. And this is the moment that Elijah meets her and he says, hey lady, give me some food. Like oblivious to what's going on because he's been feasting up in the mountains. He comes down and he says, hey lady, fix me some food. And she looks at him and she says, I, got, I just got a, a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'm just going to make a little bit of food and then we're going to die. So this is a really dark moment. And this is one of the moments in the Bible where I sort of laugh when I read it because Elijah apparently doesn't care. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. But make me some food first and then go make yourself some food. And then he continues and he says, because God will not allow that little bit of oil and that little bit of flour to run out. So this lady has no idea what's about to happen, and yet as she continues, the flour and the oil never runs out, and they're sustained, and they live. And this is an amazing and beautiful moment, and it seems that the famine has actually been taken care of. That just as Elijah was cared for in the wilderness, this widow and her son and Elijah are cared for by a miracle. And so they're sustained. And so everything is good. God and his ability to overcome the mistakes that have been made. This is a beautiful story. It's a story that maybe would happen in our own lives, right? Where we get into this moment where it seems like everything is falling apart around us and God provides some sustaining power. Right, you get just enough money to cover the rent. 
you have just enough breakthrough in your relationship to put the word divorce away. You have just enough ability to talk to one of your kids that you again have a glimmer of hope that your relationship can be restored, that maybe you haven't completely ruined your future. God does something to give you a little bit of hope. That's a beautiful story. But that is not where 1 Kings 17 ends. It continues on. So God immediately provides sustenance in the midst of the famine. He protects in this terrible moment. But it continues. And it says, sometime later, back up one slide for me. Verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill, who grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? You see, you may get to this moment where it seems like you have a glimmer of hope and then the wheels really fall off. Has anyone ever been in a situation where it seems like, okay, we're finally turned the corner only to be smacked in the face again by something much worse? Only to be smacked in the face by a bill that's twice as large as the one you barely covered last time? This is what happens to the lady. This death has nothing to do with the famine. The famine's been taken care of. They have food. He just gets sick and he dies. And she looks at the one person that she knows represents God and she says, did God do this? Is God really out to get me because of the mistakes I've made? Is it over for me? Am I too far gone? Does he really want to kick me when I'm down? And this is the question that the lady asks. And this is the moment that we would love this long speech by Elijah about how God would never do that. That's not what Elijah does. Elijah takes this widow's son. She takes, he takes this woman's future in her hands. Her future is dead. He takes it in his hands and he carries it up to the upper room. And he lays the boy, her future, down. And he says, Lord my God, he asks a question. Have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? And God is silent. He doesn't get an answer. So Elijah, as a man of God, continues to press on. And so he stretches himself out on the boy three times. And he cries out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. And so Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house, and he gave him to his mother, and he said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are the man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Elijah sees this lady who's been ravaged by Decisions in her past, ravaged by unfaithfulness to God, it takes her future to God. It says, God, would you give it back to her? Would you give her her son back? And God responds with yes. And he brings this boy back to life. This is an amazing moment where the mother and the son are reunited, and this time, she gets it in a different way. 
You see, at first, when you get the miracle of food in the midst of the famine, she's just happy. She's just happy, and that's it. But when she gets her future back, she praises God. When she realizes that God doesn't intend to take her future, that in fact, she serves a God who can bring things back to life, she says, now I know. Now I know that you are the man of God and the word of God is truly in your mouth. Look, this is an amazing story. No matter where you're at this morning, no matter what your future looks like, you may be just like that lady saying, God, are you really after me? What do you have against me? I know I've done wrong. What do you have against me? And you may only be able to ask God why. But we serve a God who wants to bring things back to life. You see, this is this moment in between, in between Genesis 15 and the cross. It's this moment when Israel is at its worst, when they're deeply unfaithful, when God has every right to exact all of the cursings on them. He has every right to allow the, the land and the famine to continue. He has every light, right to allow this child to die. They've been unfaithful. And yet in the midst of that, we see the character of God. And the character of God is that he wants to give another chance. Is that he wants to take what is dead and make it alive. Amen. So, now let's return to the cross. Continue on into this moment when God pays the consequences and the bill that has come due for the curses of a covenant violation. And wouldn't you know it, the covenant affects a small family. It affects the only son of God. But there's only one son of God. And because of covenant unfaithfulness, he dies. Talk about the ultimate killing of the future. Is that God dies in Christ. It's this crazy moment. But they don't take this only son into an upper room. Instead, they take this only son into a tomb. And no one lays on the son three times, but three days go by. And the son of God, the only son of God, is raised to life. And it's not just the future of God that's given life. The Bible goes on to teach us that actually this is our future. That this is our hope that's been raised back to life. Paul goes on to call Jesus the firstborn of all creation. And if there's a firstborn, there's more to be born after. And the New Testament says that we need to be born again into the family of God. And so you know what happens when the covenant is being faithful? The family prospers and the family gets bigger. And so when Jesus pays the consequences of covenant unfaithfulness and is ultimately faithful to what God intends to do, what happens other than the family of God grows? And we get to be a part of it. It's the ultimate undoing of the curse. 
It's the ultimate undoing of everything that's happened. And the New Testament tells us that the earth groans, waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Because you see, God wants to bring everything that is dead back to life. If the worship team will come up. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where this might hit you. It might not hit you in a moment when you feel like your life is falling apart. It might, it might hit you in that moment. I want you to know that your future is not dead. That your future may look as good as dead. It may look completely over. And yet we serve a God who brings life. Amen. We serve a God who can restore marriages, who can restore finances, who can restore broken relationships in your family. We serve a God who wants to undo all of the evil that's happened in your life. So if you'll stand with me this morning. The beautiful thing in this, and the story of this widow, is that she doesn't do much. In fact, you could say all she really does is question God. She doesn't go, why? Why? She doesn't say, God, would you please give me back? She just says, why? And that's enough for God to move in her life. God wants to move in your situation. He wants to move in the darkest of moments in your life. And so if you would, if you'll close your eyes and bow your head. We're going to finish with a little bit of prayer. God, I pray. Join Pastor Shane of Covenant Life Church next time for another powerful and inspirational message. To find out more about Covenant Life Church, log on to www.covenant-life.com or call 919-462-1932. Remember, living life without direction is meaningless. Living a purpose life with direction from Jesus Christ is your life fulfilled.